Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to say hello to everybody today on the call. Um, this is a, a really important call. Um, the call has to do with life with RAS versus host disease, or GVHD, a post-allogenetic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, and new treatment approaches, which I know you're all interested to hear about. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other both cancer and blood cancer organizations. So lots of resources you'll be having at the end of the call to actually um, have you know, any help that you may need um, you know, just going forward. Um, now, we have a lot of participants on this call today. Um, we have over 345 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call, and we welcome everyone on this call today, both from the U.S., from all different regions, rural, urban, and suburban, and the same true for our international participants as well. Now, today's uh, program is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Novartis Oncology, and Pharmacyclics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have wonderful speakers, really the best of the best speakers, as far as I'm concerned, on the today's program. And our first speaker is Dr. Samra Al-Hamsi. Dr. Al-Hamsi is Clinical Professor, Department of Medicine, NYU School of Medicine, Director, Blood and Marrow Transplant Program, Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Alhamsi is going to be addressing what is graft-versus-host disease, post-allogenetic stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, types of GDHD, chronic and acute, and common signs and symptoms of GDHD. It is really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Alhamsi. Uh, thank you very much, Carolyn. Um, it's indeed my pleasure to be with you, the faculty, and of course, patients and families. Um, so graft-versus-host disease, or um, often abbreviated as GVHD, um, is the most common complication after allogeneic blood and marrow transplant. Um, and it's unfortunately the main cause of treatment-related mortality. Um, when it's not serious enough, it still represents a significant burden um, um, on patients with impairment uh, of their quality of life. Um, I think when we talk about allogeneic blood and marrow transplantation, everybody knows that it entails the transfer of blood-forming cells, also known as hematopoietic stem cells, from the donor to the patient. What is less talked about is the fact that when we do allogeneic uh, uh, blood and marrow transplantation, we are also transferring a new immune system into the recipient. And because immune systems are designed to recognize and attack what's not self, um, such as bacteria and viruses, this is why when you get the virus, your immune system would recognize the virus as foreign and attack it, eliminate it. This is what immune systems are supposed to do. On the other hand, when we uh, perform allogeneic BMT and transfer a new immune system in the recipient, we are in a sense creating an immune conflict. When the recipient immune system attacks the graft uh, or donor cells, we get graft rejection. 
when the opposite um, um, happens, meaning when uh, the donor immune system recognizes the patient's tissues and organs as foreign, now we get into GVHD. So basically, GVHD is an attack of the donor cells against the recipient. Um, it comes in two forms. Uh, GVHD comes in two forms. One is called acute, and the other one is called chronic. Now, acute GVHD develops um, and evolves uh, rather rapidly. Typically, it occurs during the first three to four months. Sometimes it can happen later, and we call it actually late acute GVHD when it's happening beyond day 100. And the other form is chronic GVHD which is typically more insidious, um, uh, developing typically after day 100 and sometimes up to two or three years after transplant. And this can happen with or without prior history of acute GVHD. Over the last few years, we have recognized increasingly a form that sometimes you hear us calling overlap syndrome, which basically carries features of both acute and chronic GVHD. Um, these two syndromes, these two disorders, the acute and chronic GVHD, are quite different, um, and they are different in many aspects. Um, the hallmark of acute GVHD, for instance, is inflammation and cell death. Um, that disorder can uh, affect essentially the skin in form of skin rash, typically uh, redness or erythema that can involve any part of the body, can affect uh, the bowels, uh, mainly in form of diarrhea, although occasionally we see symptoms related to the upper part of the gastrointestinal tract in form of nausea or vomiting. The liver is not uncommonly affected and that can manifest in sort of jaundice uh, or can be detected by, uh, by blood tests with elevation of the bilirubin. On the other hand, the other type, the chronic GVHD, the hallmark here as opposed to um, acute inflammation and cell death as an acute GVHD, the hallmark here is really scarring and fibrosis. And that chronic GVHD can affect um, actually any, any organ or any part of the uh, body. The most commonly affected organs are the skin, the mouth, the eyes, liver, and lungs. But really, again, essentially any part of the body can be affected uh, from head uh, to toes. Um, the syndrome can present um, in form of uh, systemic features, and that's typically sort of loss of energy, not feeling well, loss of appetite, and wasting. Um, and when it involves uh, uh, organs, can involve, like I said, commonly the skin, and that could be different types of skin rash, um, something we call lichen planus-like, which basically, you know, a form of raised uh, purple uh, uh, Skin lesions um, can involve, you know, um, uh, what we call scleroderma-like changes of the skin, where basically the skin is becoming shiny, thin. Uh, it loses its elasticity and becomes more attached to the uh, deep tissues um, under it. Um, other forms of involvement in the skin could be in form of mottling, uh, loss of skin color, um, or sometimes what we call poikiloderma, um, uh, which is sort of similar to what we see on the skin exposed uh, uh, to sun with some discoloration, some dilatation of the small blood vessels. And your physician should be um, able to recognize these manifestations. There are some other forms. 
some of them uh, look like bumps around the hair follicles, what sometimes we call keratosis pilaris, um, and so on. So really the uh, skin manifestations as opposed to acute GVHD where it's straightforward and very similar, chronic GVHD of the skin can take uh, uh, different forms and, and shapes. Um, the mouth can be affected, as I said, and typically it starts with sort of dryness, uh, redness, and sometimes can advance all the way to um, ulcerations. Sometimes you could see these white lines and nets uh, inside the mouth uh, that, again, your physician should be able to recognize the manifestations of chronic GVHD. The eyes are commonly involved. They become dry, and patients often describe this as sort of uh, sensation of sand in their eyes. Um, and that can involve an increasing dryness, uh, which should not be uh, neglected. Um, the joints are organs which are commonly um, affected, um, and that results basically uh, um, in pain, uh, limitation of the range of motion um, of the joints, and um, in more advanced cases, um, in contractions. The nails are commonly also affected. They become sort of brittle with ridging and, and splitting, uh, uh, and sometimes uh, the nails could be could be lost. Uh, unfortunately, the lungs also can be affected, um, and that results actually in destruction and obstruction of the small airways, something we call uh, clinically bronchiolitis obliterance. You might hear your doctor talking about that, and that presents essentially you now as increasing cough. Uh, typically, it's a dry cough, and uh, slowly progressing shortness of breath. Uh, the guts um, are affected um, in chronic GVHD also, although the manifestations in chronic GVHD are a little bit different. Uh, you essentially lose the motility of that uh, uh, tube uh, called gastrointestinal tract and the ability to absorb nutrients. So this could present this things like difficulty swallowing, uh, the food is just not going through, or when it's involving the lower part of the gastrointestinal tract in form of uh, lack of absorption of nutrients and diarrhea. The liver is also sometimes affected, and typically this would be detected by the doctor uh, by performing blood tests. Um, other manifestations, like I said, can involve absolutely any parts of the body. Uh, for women, um, sometimes involvement uh, of chronic GVHD can cause loss of elasticity, narrowing, and scarring of the vagina that can start as, as pain uh, during intercourse. Um, so, like I said, you know, the problem with chronic GVHD is sort of, you know, more slowly and subtle symptoms, and this is why it's extremely important for patients to recognize all these uh, possible uh, symptoms and make sure they are reported to their providers. And it's very important for providers to perform very uh, detailed um, history and physical examination uh, to pick up uh, any of these manifestations. Uh, before I stop, the last concept I'd like to introduce um, is that uh, GVHD is not necessarily always bad. Um, as I said earlier, GVHD is a result of certain degree of compatibility between the donor and recipient. But as I always say, life is not necessarily about being compatible. It's really about being able to manage incompatibility, and that applies uh, to everything in life, including to transplantation. And actually, some degree of compatibility between the donor and the recipient is important because it is this incompatibility that allows also the donor immune system to recognize the recipient cancer cells and attack them. This is why sometimes when we perform a transplant from a donor recipient, 
perfectly compatible as we do, for instance, in case of identical twins, the so-called syngenaic transplants, we lose that, that benefit of the new immune system attacking the recipient uh, cancer cells. So keep in mind that um, GVHD is not only uh, uh, necessarily always a bad uh, thing, especially the limited amounts where, you know, simple manifestations of skin rash uh, might have some benefit uh, controlling the underlying cancer. I'll stop here, Carolyn, um, and I hope I addressed your questions. Oh, this is really excellent, and, and excellent um, with the way you concluded in terms of the um, the importance of that incompatibility as, as being part of life in general and a part of this as well. So um, that's, I think that puts a, a different perspective for everybody on the call, and uh, thank you for, for raising that. That's so helpful. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Yibin Chen. Dr. Chen is Director, Blood and Marrow Transplant Program, Kara J. Rogers, Endowed Scholar, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Chen is going to address prevention and new approaches to GVHD prevention, current standard of care for managing GVHD, and new and promising treatment approaches for GVHD. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chen. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, Carolyn, and I'd like to welcome everybody on the call. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. L. Amzi for introducing the topic uh, very well. And my my job here is to discuss, as you heard, uh, forms of prevention for graft-versus-host disease, uh, as well as current and emerging treatments. So it's important to realize that after every, or with every allogeneic transplant, some form of prevention against graft-versus-host disease must be given, or else unacceptable rates of early significant uh, acute graft-versus-host disease will occur. So every transplant has some prevention. It, all, it actually starts even before the transplant when your transplant physician sort of looks at your case and selects the right donor as well as the regimen in terms of the conditioning regimen and so forth. So we do know that those aspects and clinical factors do modify uh, the risk of graft-versus-host disease, both acute and chronic to certain extents. And your transplant physician in the background is balancing what Dr. Al Holmesy talked about, sort of what what is the best way to uh, give you the highest chance of cure uh, from the diagnosis of why we're doing the transplant uh, yet balancing uh, the risk of graft-versus-host disease, and oftentimes uh, it is a narrow sort of window that we have to walk in. Uh, but so choosing the right donor in terms of matching as well as the type of chemotherapy or radiation and so forth um, is, is, is part of thinking about prevention. But the actual active prevention for graft-versus-host disease that we use can be basically divided into two broad categories. Uh, the first is more common, and it's drug-based. Uh, and these mainly come in two flavors these days. By far, the most popular remains um, a calcineurin inhibitor drug, so that's either tacrolimus or cyclosporin, and that's generally paired uh, with another drug, such as methotrexate, selcept, uh, or serolimus. And so that two-drug combination is given during the transplant and often continues afterwards for several months uh, and so forth. And that is the most common form of uh, drug-based graft-versus-host disease prevention. Uh, the emerging drug-based regimen is with 
post-transplant high-dose cyclophosphamide. So cyclophosphamide is a common chemotherapy drug, and giving high doses of post-transplant cyclophosphamide most uh, commonly on days three and four after the transplant, along with other drugs, oftentimes with tacrolimus and uh, Celsept, has been shown to be quite effective. It's been certainly become the standard for mismatch-related or haploidentical transplants and is slowly spreading towards other uh, donor-type combinations with active clinical trials comparing it uh, to the, the the previous standard that are ongoing that will hopefully help define for us which uh, which regimen we should move forward with in the long run. But, but those are the two main general drug-based categories of graft-versus-host disease prevention. The second broad class is something called T-cell depletion, and that's and that's generally uh, where a lab at the transplant center will take the donor cells and manipulate it uh, before they go in the patient. And this could either be uh, selecting just for the stem cells or the stem cell population that we want and thus removing everything else, or it could be removing one set of cells if we thought a specific set of, say, T cells or something else were most responsible for graft-versus-host disease and so forth. So that's certainly a proven way of doing this. Uh, it's commonly called T cell depletion, and it's less common because it takes uh, a good amount of laboratory expertise as well as experience. Uh, it's also far more expensive than the other method. Um, and ongoing trials are comparing these to drug-based methods. Um, so those are the general categories of graft-versus-host disease prevention. In terms of as we move forward over the next 10 years, uh, ongoing clinical trials are obviously trying to improve upon these methods because graft-versus-host disease still happens. And it is a balance. As Dr. L. Holmesy said, we do uh, want to prevent graft-versus-host disease, but we do not want to lose the ultimate effect of the donor cells attacking any residual cancer cells, which is how we think transplant works uh, to cure cancer in the long run. But so the emerging ways are obvious, are to take the two drug-based uh, regimens and add uh, other drugs, so more more novel agents that work in different ways that perhaps are not harmful in terms of the immune system. A lot of these are anti-inflammatory drugs or work in other pathways that are thought to prevent graft-versus-host disease. So ongoing trials are adding other drugs to those backbones. And then in terms of the lab-based method, uh, more advanced technologies are being used to ask, well, what cells do we really think we need? to make a successful transplant, and are there other cells that we think we don't need, and in this way separate graft-versus-host disease from ultimately the true therapeutic effect of the donor cells attacking cancer. And as we become more precise in our ability to select certain cells and uh, sort of customize and engineer a graft, uh, perhaps we can uh, reach the ultimate goal of uh, being able to make this successful. But those are the ongoing trials at the moment, and I think all of us are are very excited to see the outcomes of such. I'm going to turn uh, my discussion now over to treatment. Um, I'm going to start with acute graft-versus-host disease, which Dr. Elhamzi certainly outlined the com common signs and symptoms, and the timing of it, again, is usually within the first uh, six months after transplant. Uh, the treatment, unfortunately, uh, for all of us in this field, hasn't changed over the last 30 years. The first-line therapy uh, involves uh, high-dose systemic steroids such as prednisone or solimedrol, uh, depending on your institution and where you are in your symptoms. Um, steroids do a lot of good for graft-versus-host disease. 50% uh, of patients, that's all they need, steroids alone and their disease response, and they can ultimately taper off steroids. 
the problem would be the other 50% of patients who uh, steroids either don't work or partially work or uh, work, and then upon lowering, uh, the symptoms flare again, and uh, patients then need uh, some other agent. Um, there have been a lot of agents tried uh, after steroids, um, and uh, some some have worked for some some people and others haven't. There has there is no best agent just yet. No agents are FDA approved to be standard of care. The the sort of the newer thinking is has has come down to uh, patients are very vulnerable during this time of acute graft versus host disease, having just undergone a transplant, and the immune system, while responsible for graft versus host disease, the immune system itself is is still fairly immature and weak in protecting from infection. So the newer agents that are being actively tested these days um, are are agents that are hopefully not broadly immune system weakening. Uh, rather, they target specific inflammatory pathways or other methods such as uh, blocking where white blood cells go and how they travel in the body uh, or using other specific modes of cells uh, to knock down certain parts of the immune system. So the, the emerging paradigm for how we're going to move forward is that uh, we need to focus on drugs that don't harm the immune system globally but can specifically suppress graft-versus-host disease. Excitingly, uh, we may soon have an FDA approval for steroid uh, or for second-line acute graft-versus-host disease. There is exciting results uh, presented for a drug called ruxolitinib or Jacophy, which is made by Insight. A lot of us have used this on clinical trials or off with good success, and so we hope to hear from the FDA in early 2019 their decision on if this can be approved uh, for acute graft-versus-host disease, which has not responded satisfactorily to steroids. I think moving forward, the big research questions are acknowledging that not all cases of acute graft-versus-host disease are the same. They're, in fact, not probably not the same disease. And trying to figure out or realize up front at the first sign of symptoms uh, which patients will do better and which patients will do worse is paramount. And thus, if we're able to, quote-unquote, risk stratify up front for patients, we can then design different treatments uh, than just the steroids. The, the ongoing clinical trials are trying to say if we can identify a high-risk group of patients, either by symptoms or by blood tests, then we can give them the standard steroids plus another drug that we think would be effective but yet also identifying a low-risk group of patients uh, who, who may not even need steroids um, or may need much lower dose of steroids, and thus we can spare the side effects of such um, or do a much faster taper of, of, of treatment if we can accurately identify who will who is destined to be high-risk and who is destined to be low-risk. So those are, the, those are the approaches moving forward for acute graft-versus-host disease that all of us are getting involved with and looking forward to seeing. Um, for chronic graft-versus-host disease, again, this, this happens much later. As Dr. L. Holmesy said, it's a bit more insidious, I think was the word he used, which I fully agree with. Uh, it's, uh, steroids uh, at a lower dose than acute are still also the standard of care for chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, and some patients, that is all they need, but uh, the majority of patients will, will likely have a longer course of low-dose steroids, which do take their toll. Uh, or or need a second line. And again, just like acute, a lot of us are very keen to the fact that we sh probably should try and use other drugs besides the older drugs, which globally suppress the immune system and put our patients at risk for infection. 
excitingly, in the last year and a half, we had an FDA approval for second line chronic graft-versus-host disease treatment, and that's a drug called Ibrutinib or Imbruvica, and that targets a specific type of white blood cells called the B cells, uh, and and has helped a lot of patients suffering from chronic graft-versus-host disease, although it's certainly not a home run or perfect in any way. But it is a first step uh, in making things better, especially because it's a pill that can be taken easily. Uh, just like in acute graft-versus-host disease, many of us are using uh, ruxolitinib or Jacophy, these JAK inhibitors, in chronic graft-versus-host disease with much success. And ongoing trials will hopefully allow uh, those agents to gain approval in this space as well. But But the real... The real common theme is that we are moving away from drugs that cause global immunosuppression. And I guess the emerging paradigm moving forward for research is using these novel drugs, which do not suppress the immune system, some of which I'd mentioned. I guess another agent that is that was just presented results that will uh, that has active clinical trials is a drug made by the company uh, Cadmon, K-A-D-M-O-N, uh, and and their drug is a ROC inhibitor. ROC is a molecule that um, I won't go into at the moment, but it's a it's uh, is a protein in cells that cause inflammation, and so inhibiting that has shown to be quite impressive for chronic graft-versus-host disease on just presented results, and larger trials are opening with that agent as well. Well, but the, you know the common theme with that agent and jacophene and brutinib is that they they hit specific pathways that don't suppress the whole immune system. And lastly, I shall say that I think all of us realize the toll that graft-versus-host disease takes on our patients, um, and so there is certainly a larger focus on prevention of it in general. Though obviously we want to make treatment better, I think uh, the ongoing large clinical trials in prevention. Uh, that have focused on this uh, are, have also become a gigantic priority for us as a field. Uh, so I'll just stop there for now. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Chen. That was really very excellent, very um, comprehensive, and I think um, gives people a lot of ideas about um, really how um, GDHD is, is treated and um, also um, and just also what to look into in terms of future expectations and, and drugs that are in um, approval line or FDA, waiting, awaiting FDA approval, so all this research being done. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Nandita Kara. And Dr. Kara is consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Associate Professor of Medicine, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kara is going to address the role of clinical trials how research increases your treatment options, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about GVHD, including finding GVHD early. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kara. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for attending this session, um, all of you. I am going to talk a little bit about clinical trials in the area of GVHD and um, other questions to ask your team. So we all know that clinical trials help advance science by moving scientific di discoveries from branch to bedside. Uh, behind every medicine and intervention that has been developed, we know that there are thousands of patients who have volunteered to participate in clinical trials. I do want to point out here that clinical trials are a small portion of the, of the overall research umbrella because research is a much broader term that includes but may not be limited to observational studies, clinical trials, and basic science projects. In graft-versus-host disease, this research has improved our understanding of pathogenesis and the basic biology that has helped work on 
new therapeutic and treatment approaches to target specific pathways and ultimately help the patients achieve freedom from this um, problem. It has helped us understand the benefits and risks of existing treatments um, so that the clinicians can choose the best possible treatment for their patient. And finally, it has helped us understand that it is not just clinical outcomes um, that are important for, chronic, uh, for GVHD, but also patient-reported outcomes that need to be looked at carefully when deciding the effectiveness of treatments. As most of you realize, it is not a very frequent complication, and so there are certain challenges in conducting clinical trials and studies in this area, such as institutional biases. Um, you know, the doctors that have been practicing a certain way, it is so hard to change their, their thought process and their practice pattern. Um, there may be challenges in GVHD staging, um, and finally, there may be challenges in the resources available to a transplant center that can help them manage GVHD in a different way. To try and overcome some of these challenges, multi-center consortiums have come together to try and perform research in the area. They have helped standardize the collection of uh, complex clinical data that is needed for the research. Um, they have been able to collect rich patient-reported outcomes data with the ultimate goal of improving care for, for our patients with GVHD. Two such examples that I would like to mention are the MAGIC Consortium, which is the Mount Sinai Acute GVHD International Consortium, which has done remarkable work in, in developing biomarkers or, or what we would say some chemicals in the blood that can help diagnose um, and ultimately define the treatment protocols uh, for, for our patients. And the second one is the Chronic GVHD Consortium, uh, which has also helped uh, realize that patient-reported outcomes are an important part of assessment for, for our chronic GVHD patients. In addition, we have a transplant registry, the International Bone, Bone and Blood and Marrow Transplant Registry, that has a working committee that conducts studies in this area uh, with respect to biology, prevention, and treatment of graft-versus-host disease and complications. I do want to mention a little bit about the endpoints for these clinical trials. So as um, Dr. Chen mentioned, um, there may be two ways to think about it. One is the prevention of GVHD. So for prevention trials, occurrence of any GVHD can be considered as an endpoint. However, most of these trials look at occurrence of grade two to four GVHD, since these are the ones that will require systemic treatment and may be considered clinically significant because they are the ones that can become life-threatening if not managed appropriately. For treatment survi uh, trials, survival free of the GVHD or freedom from GVHD manifestations has, have been traditionally used as the endpoints. But um, importantly, we now realize that improvement in symptoms, function, quality of life are also uh, important endpoints. There is also work going on that is looking at endpoints that can reflect the degree of GVHD activity um, through physician assessments, blood tests, and biomarkers, and how they may predict or confirm how the patients um, respond to the treatment. So how does research increase treatment options? Uh, again, Dr. Chen discussed uh, some of the very new approaches in this area, which have all been developed based on the clinical trials in the area. Um, I would like to highlight uh, two examples here again. One of them is an observational study, or uh, what we call post-aid study. It is uh, a multi-center prospective study that has looked at real-life data of, of clinical outcomes in patients who were started on second-line therapy for severe acute GVHD. 
Um, and this is an international study um, with centers across the U.S. and Europe. And what we found from this study was that the median survival from start of the second-line therapy was still not very good. And so it basically tells us that we still need to do a lot of work but what this has given us is data that we can use as a comparative data when we when we plan for studies around intervention or newer treatments. The second study um, is that of the ibrutinib uh, trial, which is the FDA-approved treatment for granic GVHD. And this was, again, a multi-center study which looked at using this uh, medicine called ibrutinib in patients with active chronic GVHD who had not responded adequately to the steroids, which are the mainstay of treatment for GVHD. Um, the study also had some uh, blood markers that were assessed in addition to the clinical outcomes um, to understand the scientific rationale for, for this medicine. And um, eventually, the study did lead to approval. Um, so that's where uh, the importance of clinical trials comes in. My next part is going to be questions to ask your team about GVHD, including how to uh, know early on if you have GVHD. So, so the first and foremost thing I would say is, um, in general, when uh, the transplant centers uh, see these patients for a transition visit when they are going to transition back to their referring doctor. Uh, we share with them a list of things that the patients have to watch themselves for, such as dry eyes, dry mouth, um, discoloration or thickening of skin, um, nausea, diarrhea, difficulty swallowing, some of the things that Dr. Alhomsi mentioned. Um, so we give the patients a list of those things, and we ask them to report not only to their treating doctor, but also reach out back to their transplant team if they have anything like that so that it can be appropriately worked up and treated in uh, early on. In addition, uh, when patients do develop GVHD, I think some of the pertinent questions that would be um, that they could ask their healthcare team is what medicines will the will I be on? And that is because um, there is not just uh, medicines uh, such as immunosuppressive medicines to treat GVHD. There may be other medicines such as preventative antibiotics that are needed to help manage uh, the increased risk of side effects or medicines to help control blood pressure, stomach irritation, or some of the side effects that the immunosuppressive medicines will cause. I think the second question um, would be, which most patients, I think, when I see them in clinic are concerned about, is how long will they be on treatment? And in general, it is very hard to predict how uh, an individual patient will do. We have studies showing, though, that the median time of treatment for some of the patients once they have chronic GVHD may be in the range of about two years. And again, this can depend on how they respond to the treatment, what additional treatments they require, and what the trajectory of their um, graft-versus-host disease is. Um, another important question to ask your team would be, how can I take care of my health? Uh, what are some of the other things that I can do to, to manage my health, my life, uh, along with this GVHD? And this is where I think your team will talk to you about not just managing GVHD, but also trying to adopt a lifestyle, a very healthy lifestyle, avoiding any sorts of uh, uh, things that could increase your risk for complications and following carefully and regularly with your uh, with your doctors. 
And um, finally, I have to say that chronic GVHD is is a chronic complication. So we understand as as uh, your healthcare providers, we do understand that it has an impact on your quality of life. It can impact your ability to go back to work on on the financial issues uh, for your household. So all of those things are, I think, important for for patients to ask uh, from their healthcare team as to um, help them plan better. We we should not allow things to just go on till they are in a crisis mode. I think planning ahead, if you do get diagnosed with GVHD, especially chronic GVHD, is important. Um, and that's where if you let your team know early on or ask those questions, those relevant questions, you can be connected to resources uh, which are available um, from various agencies, such as the National Merit Donor Program um, and Cancer Care, which um, I think is a good transition point me, for me to give it back to Carolyn because I think she has some um, of those things to talk over. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kerr. That was really excellent and really um, just um, really a call out to clinical trials and also to really work closely with the healthcare team. And I'm going to say just a few words about Cancer Care's resources, um, and then we're going to take questions. So please do put your questions together now so that we're going to be very soon. We have actually very, a good time for taking your questions, so this is a great time to ask our RTDHD experts about, about your questions. So I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide what we call psychosocial support which by oncology social workers. So what does that mean? It means a chance to talk with someone or get help with the practical, financial, emotional, um, and social issues of coping with GDHD or any type of cancer issues or side effects or any type of cancer. And so um, our treatment side effects. And um, our staff are available either by calling our 800 number or by visiting our website. You'll be getting an evaluation at the end of this program. And many of you already have this information. But if you don't, you'll, be getting, you'll all be emailed or sent by mail um, the evaluation form to complete. And uh, you'll have not just resources about cancer care, but resources about all the organizations or anything we've mentioned during the call or during the question and answer period that might be helpful to you. Um, so we offer a range of services, and those include really just really talking with one of our staff, either on the phone or um, online, about some issue that you might be um, coping with. It might affect going back to work, um, how do I talk to your boss, um, it could affect how do I talk to my children, how do I deal with this myself, so all the kind of questions that you might have, how do I talk to my healthcare team, um, how, do I, how do I put my questions together. Um, and lots of other questions as well. Also, we do offer um, online support groups and telephone support groups. At the moment, we have over 138 online support groups, and those are groups specifically uh, for both people who are people who are living with GVHD and their caregivers, and we have a lot of caregiver support groups as well. And we have specific groups for people with GVHD as well. Um, so those are online groups, and they're very good for people both in the U.S. and internationally because time doesn't matter. So no matter what time zone you're in, um, you can post the groups. You can post any time of the day or night, um, depending on where you are. And um, you can actually, um, there are oncology social workers are facilitating those groups, and there are lots of people on the groups. Some people post, some people listen, watch the posts, and everyone is pre-screened, and we know who each of you are. Um, but you do use a password protected, so you're very protected in the in these, um, in these online groups. We also do telephone support groups as well. And um, we also do offer just individual help. We have a Cancer Care for Kids program helping children 
who actually may be, there may be most of the children we help are children who have cancer in their families or GVHD in their families, and the children may be having a hard time understanding it, children and teens and young adults as well, um, or young adults with GVHD as well. Um, and we also um, offer just practical and financial assistance. Um, the financial assistance part, our copay assistance programs, those are pretty much for people in the U.S. But if someone in another country is having problems, we can probably help to link you up to resources in your country or area that you live in. Um, and, um, and we do these programs, a lot of them, so there's lots of them coming up, and you'll be getting uh, more information about those um, as well. So that concludes my comments about just cancer care services. They're free, and I would say in, when in doubt, go ahead and try us and see if we can be of help to you. And if we are not the ones that can best help you, we definitely can refer you to other places. And the National Maradona Program is a wonderful program that was mentioned, and you will be getting information about them as a resource as well because they're a great resource as well in terms of um, these issues. So now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask... Um, uh, Crystal, if she would explain to you how to queue up the questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then 1. So this is a question from one of our online participants, um, and this question is um, for Dr. Alhamsi. I'll start with Dr. Alhamsi on this question first. Um, uh, why uh, my sister, who has children, is considered a higher-risk donor even though she is a match? If you could just address this question in a general way, and then, of course, we do invite our, speaker, our participants to go back to the treating healthcare team. But. Thank you very much for the question. Yes, it has been recognized for some time now that uh, when you do a transplant from a female donor into a male recipient, the incidence of GVHD is higher. It's not really clear the reason for that. It could be related to uh, previous pregnancies, and typically pregnancies are associated with exposure to different antigens from the fetus, or it could be uh, related to the difference in six chromosomes. Thank you. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that? Or okay. And then um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and I'm going to Dr. Chen. Um, I'm donating my stem cells to my brother. How do I prepare? Is there anything I can do to make my stem cells better for him? That's a question that probably gets frequently from donors. Uh, what, what can they do? Yeah. Um, not really. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think when you're seen by the donor team, they give you standard recommendations of avoiding certain medications and avoiding alcohol during the time that you're stimulating your stem cells before collection. But there's uh, not a whole lot uh, you can do to make them work better that we know. So um, I think the standard recommendations we give our donors is just to maintain an active, healthy lifestyle, and then they, uh, your donor team will talk about certain uh, drugs and alcohol to avoid during the time that uh, you're stimulating stem cells and collection. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And does anyone want to add to that? Or? Okay, excellent. Okay. Thank you. Um, and um, uh, a question for Dr. Kara from one of our online participants. Um, so I am on steroids for GVHD. Do you get dependent on taking them? What happens when you need to stop taking them? If you could address this, Dr. Kara. 
Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, uh, it depends a little bit on your response, um, depending on if you are able to um, respond well to the steroids, you may be able to come off it, although um, it would have to be very, very slow because your body does get used to the steroids and the adrenal glands, which are um, small glands on top of the kidneys, which make the steroids for the body, they can start shrinking when your body is getting steroids from the outside. So, so yes, you have to be very careful if you are coming off the steroids. They have to be tapered slowly, and if you do develop, like, an infection or something, they may have to be increased for a little while. Um, but the other uh, side to it is if, if you are not responding very well and if your healthcare team feels like you need some additional treatments in addition to steroids, they may do that in order to try and get you off the steroids or get you on the lowest possible dose of the steroids um, because eventually there are long-term risks um, and side effects with the steroids. So a lot of it will depend on how you respond to them if, if that helps you. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and you may have mentioned the tapering or is that, or is that required here or how that is done? Oh, doctor. Um, oh, is it in terms of tapering? You may have said that already, but if you're if one's going to stop taking them in terms of tapering, how that's done? Or usually, it is done over um, the the taper schedule. Usually, is over weeks to months, especially if it is for chronic GVHD. For acute GVHD, if you do respond very well, they can come off a little bit sooner. But again, the team, the healthcare team, is the one that decides what the pace of that taper would be. So we don't want anyone to do this on your own. You definitely have to work with your healthcare yes, team. Yes, you have to work with your healthcare providers. Okay, excellent, thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Alhamsi. Um, so after getting a bone marrow transplant, I have to develop GVHD. Will GVHD cause permanent damage? Um, again, it depends if it's acute or chronic GVHD, but not necessarily. A lot of um, patients with GVHD are treated successfully and they go on with normal life with no sequela. But certainly it's, it's also possible uh, depending on the um, type and the severity of GVHD. Um, and again, this is a very good question to ask your provider when you speak about, you know, interacting with your providers about your GVHD. It's a good question to ask about the prognosis and what to expect in the future. Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, another question, a question for Dr. Chen. Um, um, I was diagnosed with GVHD and I'm worried about the medication causing kidney and liver damage. Are there other treatment options? And just to get a general answer because, of course... Um, yeah, it's tough to answer that without knowing all the specifics and also what, what, the, um, what the agent in mind is that, that you're taking. Um, I mean, it, I, I would start a dialogue with your treating team. Uh, it's also tough to answer based on I don't know where where you are in GVHD treatment. So uh, that there are always definitely options, um, and most centers will will certainly try to have certain clinical trials open. We're we're actually in an era which is really interesting, where uh, we actually have a lot of interest from industry or better yet known as pharmaceutical companies that are actually investing in uh, transplant and specifically GVHD-related research, uh, which is really great uh, because just because it's allowed us to do more clinical trials and uh, test more agents uh, to ultimately make treatment better. Uh, so all of us are um, 
it's a big change from, let's say, 10 years ago when when you couldn't get a company to be interested uh, in helping to develop drugs uh, for this indication. So I think a healthy dialogue with your treating team about your fears, uh, certainly not, not, not everyone uh, gets the toxicities that are listed, and all drugs will have pages of side effects and toxicities listed if you look at everything. Um, and just understand that most drugs uh, that toxicity you experience uh, will oftentimes be reversible. And if you have a side effect, uh, you can stop the drug and, and uh, move on, you know, so uh, to an, an, another approach. But if your fear is certainly w well-founded, I, I would ask your team to go over the options with you and what makes sense and what doesn't. I think a healthy dialogue is always the right way. So it's always okay to call their physicians. I know many people live in very rural areas and far away from the treating healthcare team. So um, if you, I know people often will, will say, I have to wait till my next appointment. And we sometimes on the call still bring this up. And do uh, you want to just comment on that, Dr. Chen? Because the next appointment could be a month away and someone's, you know, has a, has a problem right now. And um, Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think all of us who treat patients like yourselves understand that, uh, you know, that problems do happen in between appointments and not all questions and concerns are raised at the time of an appointment and so accessibility to your team is certainly something uh, we pride ourselves in and I think uh, being able to email, call, or have communication with your a member of your treating team to go over these concerns is paramount. I mean, and I think that's 100% necessary in 2018, especially if if you live not so proximate to, to the center which you received your transplant at. So, I mean, I think reaching out to your team, please don't feel, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everybody, but I would say for the vast majority of people in this field that no one is, everybody understands uh, that there is confusion and fears and concerns and, uh, you know, we're here to go over options and to make sure we're all on the same page for a treatment plan. So don't hesitate to reach out uh, with questions and concerns. Awesome. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Karif, one of our online participants. I had um, hap haplocord transplant for MDS one year ago. I recently developed very dry eyes and lesions, fissures on my fingers, specifically around the nails. Um, I feel I can use OTC agents like Aquaphor. Is it dangerous not to be on steroids? I obviously would prefer to avoid steroids if GVHD does not affect pulmonary or GI systems. Could you, now this is a, a, a very personal question, if you could just address it in a general way and yeah. Others may want to weigh in on it as well, but um, thank you. I think that's, you, that's a great question because that just shows us the importance that you are very proactive in terms of monitoring yourself for, for um, GBHD-related issues. I would say that um, it's okay to continue to use the over-the-counter agents. However, I would mention this to your treatment team at some point so that they can do a very thorough evaluation. Um, sometimes the GVHD, even though maybe present in one area, um, the other area may lag behind or something may be going on that you cannot see for yourself. But if the if your healthcare team, if your transplant um, team can do a thorough evaluation and make sure there's no other areas um, that are involved that could be uh, potentially dangerous to, to not treat, um, then I think it would be fine to continue um, what you're doing. But uh, just uh, all I would say is make sure you get evaluated before you decide to just continue um, to keep on just taking the over-the-counter agents without, for fear of being on steroids, um, because I think it would be your treatment team that has to make that decision whether you need 
systemic treatment or not. Well, thank you so much. And, and others want to weigh in on that as well? Or? Um, sure. Let me just stress again what Dr. Kara was saying is, you know, we do not treat all GVHD, especially, you know, early stages. It's very common for us to tolerate this, not to lose, uh, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes the benefit of GVHD controlling the disease. So sometimes early stages, you know, for the acute, certainly stage one, where the skin is the only organ involved, limited areas of skin, or crank GVHD, again, early stages, it's not uncommon for us to tolerate that and not treat it. The other part of treatment, which is important. Not every GVHD is treated with systemic steroids, and sometimes topical treatments are equally important. If the issue is, you know, without commenting on a specific case, is limited to the eyes, for instance, you know, local treatments in form of artificial tears and eventually topical cyclosporin, and this kind of things might be adequate. So certainly, you know, something to be kept in mind is that sometimes we tolerate early forms of GVHD, and sometimes we treat GVHD with topical treatments. Not every GVHD means, you know, systemic steroids. Thank you. And Dr. Chen, do you wish to add anything? Or? Uh, no, I'm okay. okay. Okay, thank you. Okay. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, uh, for Dr. Um, Al-Hamsi. Um, so the immunosuppressive medication has caused me to become very tired. How can I manage it? Um, how can I manage it? Um, so again, it's a, it's a not knowing all the details, but just in general ways in terms sure. of the fatigue issue. Sure. Sure. So there are many reasons uh, to feel tired after transplant, and it's not always related to medications. Sometimes, you know, simple things as anemia and so on, you know, might be causing some of the fatigue. Um, so, again, this is a good question to ask, um, you know, the provider and um, see if they can identify a reason before blaming the medications and um, see how can they help. Thank you. And anyone else want to add? Okay, excellent. Um, so then, um, so here's a question um, for Dr. Chen. Are there dietary changes that I will need to make if I have GVHD? Well, uh, we. So the short answer is we don't know. Um, I think it depends on uh, acute or chronic graft versus host disease, and specifically if it's acute graft versus host disease involving the intestine. So. Um, certainly, if you have acute graft versus associated with the intestine, and that is generally presents, as Dr. El Holmes said, with uh, sort of a lot of diarrhea, then there will be obvious uh, uh, dietary changes made generally in the hospital to treat that. But but outside of that, if the general question is, if I get GVHD, should I make dietary changes? We don't know the answer to that. I think uh, we don't know if certain dietary changes will help graft versus host disease. Now. There are some exceptions, you know, so uh, most patients, as you heard from what I said, start on steroids uh, for treatment, and steroids, one of the toxicities of steroids, which is why we want to get away from steroids, is that they trigger or cause or push people into diabetes, you know, and that uh, that depends on the dose as well as the duration of steroids, but certainly if you do develop diabetes, that will inherently lead to dietary changes. Um, and then the, the 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 more interesting uh, research that's being done is in a part of uh, research that's being done for a lot of uh, conditions, which is called the microbiome. The microbiome refers to the the sort of the colony of healthy bacteria that tends to reside in your bowels. Um, and since the bowels are a very 
uh, dense place for bacteria to come into contact with uh, one's immune system. A lot of shaping of the immune system is really thought to happen based on uh, one's microbiome. And so this is all very sort of quote-unquote hot research in a lot of areas of medicine, including diabetes and obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, and it's also in transplant and graft-versus-host disease, and we're just starting to learn things. Uh, we generally tend to think of a more diverse microbiome uh, marks for a better uh, for better patient outcomes, but we have yet to prove that uh, you know doing that and making that happen is causative and will bring about uh, better outcomes. And we also don't know how to exactly do it in terms of probiotics or lack of antibiotics or other things. So or or dietary changes, uh, which definitely affects your microbiome. So. So that's a very long answer <laughs> to we don't know, uh, but doing research in a lot of interesting areas that will hopefully one day allow us to figure the answer out to that question. Thank you. These are really amazing questions. Um, anyone else wish to add anything? That's an interesting question. It comes up on all of our calls on different topics, but um, that's, thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Kara. Um, so I've had my transplant two months ago and haven't had any signs of GVHD. Can GVHD develop long after transplant? Um, yes, it, it can. Um, so a lot of the risk factors are um, your pre-transplant risk factors as to who your donor was, what kind of uh, conditioning you got, what GVHD preventative regimen did you get. Um, so that may influence uh, some of the, the, the occurrence of acute GVHD and in the long-term chronic GVHD. So I would say even if you haven't had any so far, um, it would be a good idea to continue to monitor yourself, um, and especially if you're transitioning out from the transplant center back to your hematologist. Um, as I mentioned, there's a list of things that you need to be watching for because you can develop uh, what we call de novo chronic GVHD, which can be without any evidence of uh, acute before, or even, um, for that matter, even um, late acute, you know, the acute the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and the skin rash, all of that can happen even after um, the initial two, three months of transplant. Well, thank you. Anyone want to add to that? Um, well, I have to say, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our speakers. You've been just amazing, um, I have to say. And I also I want to thank our participants because you've really asked really such great questions. I have to say, um, your questions really help to, um, you know, uh, further uh, allow our speakers to actually um, um, further develop themes that are, are important to all of you so it gives us a chance to cover additional topics. Um, and so we really want to thank you all. Um, this is a very incredible group of participants on today's call asking really great questions. Um, now, I know there are many more questions in queue, and so before we conclude the call, I do want to say a few words for all of you who are still waiting to get your questions answered. So one thing we do encourage you, and I think a number of our speakers have said this throughout the call, is that um, we do encourage all of you, of course, to um, to speak to your healthcare team. Of course, your healthcare team knows you the best. They know all the details of your situation. And as you've been given permission by our speakers, you really don't want to wait till that next appointment if something's bothering you. You really can call. And it is important also, I would recommend that all of you know how to call them, not just during the day, but in the evening and weekends, which seems to be the time when people often have a lot of questions, if that resonates for all of you on the call. It, it seems that that's just by nature for everyone. 
that that's when things seem to happen, evenings and weekends. Um, so, but do, do check and see like who is available to you, so that you really have a really good sense of access to your healthcare team. They're really important, and they've invested a lot in your care. They care about you, and they really do do want you. They encourage you to. They want to know what's going on. Definitely. In addition to, of course, um, the um, your healthcare team, there are a host of organizations that really. Um, um, can send you literature about um, and, and, and do programs, but much like this program, about GBHT. Um, this is definitely a topic that um, affects so many of you. And so um, when the program concludes, we will um, identify a number of organizations that are listed in our program today with their website addresses and telephone numbers, depending on where you are in the country or what your preference is in terms of contact. And um, they do offer wonderful resources, um, the National Maradona Program. Um, there's just a number of programs, so many, many programs out there that which really send you some really great literature and information and also you'd be able to speak to someone. Um, so that's, that's another way of getting information. And I also often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. That is, of course, um, a wonderful repository of all the current up-to-date information information that's in, also information about clinical trial information. Um, so I would say to call them or, or visit their website. They do have a live chat feature, and you can post your question in a live chat box, and um, one of their information specialists will then address it. We'll go through all of their NCI database and really get back to the question with, with, an answers, with multiple answers to your question and perhaps links to other places that you could get information. So that's a great resource as well. Um, and if you wanted to take advantage of any of the cancer care services, you can simply call our 800 number or you can visit our website, indicate that you want to speak to one of our social workers, take advantage of all the different services we offer and, and utilize that. So most importantly, as we're about to conclude the program, we would not want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with GBHD or um, with any type of treatment or cancer or side effect, anything that you're dealing with, we want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of supportive organizations. So if you thought you were the only person in your particular community or town or state that has, is coping with this issue of GDHD, you now know that there are lots of people out there, both in the U.S. and internationally, who are actually coping with this as well, and also many, many more, of course, um, and so therefore... Um, there are lots of you out there, and to some extent, there are lots of organizations that can help you. So when you get your evaluation, you will get a listing of all of the organizations. They'll come with the, with the evaluation. We'd like you to complete the evaluation, but whether you complete it or not, you're still going to get all of those resources um, as an additional help to all of you after the call today. Also, I should tell you the call is available um, within, I would say, give it a day or two on our website as a podcast, as a kind of an archived program. So you can listen to it um, if you wanted to listen to it again or ask them members to listen to it. Some people actually ask their healthcare team to listen to it again as well, just because we do have speakers from some of the major centers in the country, and everyone doesn't have access to that information sometimes, so it can be helpful to many of you. And I would recommend you listen to it again yourself, just because you might have missed something that could really help you as well. So I uh, want to thank all of you for being on this call today. Um, I also want to remind you that CancerCare does just um, initiate a new meditation app, which people really seem to be enjoying. And it, it offers relaxation exercises. It's free, and it's on our website. And you can, you'll see it when you go to our website, and you can click on it and get more information. And if you wish to have some methods to, for relaxation or just, you know, just kind of that would be, might be helpful to some of you um, in coping. Um, so, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.